everybody so the song this week is lana del rey serial killer the very first thing i'm going to say right now is this episode is going to be long longer than usual but if true crime is your thing you're gonna love this so take a bathroom break grab a snack get a drink this is going to be something (laughs) On a more serious note, um, there is a ton of trigger warnings that I'm plastering on here, and trigger warnings are always around for a reason, but this is not a trigger warning that I'm just going to say and brush over. Like, seriously, this gets bad. I am a true crimer uh, myself, but doing the research and writing today's podcast honestly made me feel sick on more than one occasion. So having said that, be warned, things get very, very heavy, graphic, and gruesome. I would say the trigger warnings would be death, gore, torture, murder, obviously, mutilations, very strong sexual sexual assault imagery, like anything and everything that you you can think of, really. And the usual disclaimer, I am not a professional. Maybe one day I will be, but today is not that day. So do not take anything I say as gospel. Please seek professional help if you feel you need advice or any kind of medical help. Also, we need to quickly touch on questions. Please keep sending your questions if you have them. You can either send them to me personally if you have my contact information, or you can send them to my Instagram at Firefly Psychology. Firefly, Firefly Psychology is all one word. Given the length of this episode, I won't be answering any today, but I will in the next episode. So trying to decide who I was going to talk about today, um, I tried to pick a few that I thought people may not know of yet, uh, and then I threw in a few classics, if that's what we can call them. So let's dive into this. The first one is Angela Simpson, and as far as female serial killer goes, um, she is fairly well known, I think. She actually has a sound on TikTok that went viral in the last few months. So when I start talking about her, you might recognize her. She is someone who has always interested me just as much as Eileen Warnos. And if you haven't listened to the first installment of Serial Killers on this podcast, go do that. It's spicy. Angela Simpson is one of the people, like one of those people who, after listening to her her interviews, I was like, is she serious or is this like some kind of act? I mean, even if it is an act, there's still, like that's, that's super messed up considering the context. No normal person would do that. I think she may have put on a show for the cameras, but she still said what she said and that says a lot about her as a person in general. Angela Simpson was born on November 29th, 1975, which makes her 34 at the time of the murder we're about to talk about. According to police in Phoenix, Arizona in 2009, Simpson lured her victim, Terry Neely, to her apartment with promises of drugs and sex. Neely lived in a nearby apartment, and he was a disabled man who was confined to a wheelchair. Once she got him into her apartment, She tortured, killed, and dismembered him. There are interviews with her on YouTube, and just the inflection in her voice and the so-matter-of-a-fact attitude, like, it just gets me. Um, Hopefully this audio isn't too bad. Sorry, everybody, I'm poor, (laughs) Uh, and my equipment is limited at the moment, but I'm going to get you to listen to this little snippet of an interview, just so you can hear the way that she speaks. The interviewer asked her basically to relay what she did to him that day and what happened, and this was her response. I took him to my house, walked him down the street. I don't know why the media acts like the motherfucker couldn't walk. He walked very well. Walked him upstairs, kicked his ass, and killed him. So what she did with him in that apartment was um, she made Neely watch 
while he was still in his wheelchair in a mirror as she beat him, stabbed him, drove nails into his skull, and pulled out his teeth one by one. And then she ended up strangling him with a TV cable. But this torture went on. She drug it out for three days. According to autopsy results, Neely sustained multiple blunt force trauma head injuries and a three-inch nail had been driven or hammered into his brain. He was also stabbed approximately 50 times. His throat was slit and he was dismembered. Neely's body was found in a burning trash can in the parking lot behind a Phoenix church in early August 2009. Uh, Detectives arrested Simpson two weeks later. A grand jury uh, indicted her charges of first-degree murder and kidnapping on August 27th. Simpson said she killed Neely because he was a snitch, or that's what she believed, and allegedly that wasn't true at all. And she quotes in this same interview, I believe informants and child molesters should be killed, period. End quote. So she puts snitches and child molesters at the same level of horrible. She also has mentioned that the day uh, in court, she said that justice wasn't served because she didn't get the death penalty. She thinks that she does deserve the death penalty. Therefore, justice wasn't served. When she was asked why she did it, besides him running his mouth and being a snitch, allegedly, she said, he was white trash. Someone had to take it out. And then she said uh, she would never, ever kill a black individual. And then she was asked if she could do it over, like go back to that first day, what would she do? And she said, I'd have kept him a week, tortured him for a week instead of three days, and then killed him. She's just, she's just ruthless. Okay, there is one more piece of audio that I'm going to get you to listen to because I just can't do it justice by simply explaining it. She is in an interview um, and they ask her about another almost victim of hers and this is what she says. Right, and I regret not killing my other victim. I should have killed him too. I just didn't have time. I had to go somewhere. Joseph Van Tress for the armed robbery. Like, oh yeah, you know, got a busy life, you know, had things to do, so she cut him loose. It's just insanity to me. So whether this matter-of-fact attitude was an act, it doesn't really matter. Uh, She would be classified as a uh, psychopath because of the lack of emotions and remorse. And we are going to get on to our next serial killer who is also female, also an older lady. Her name is Dorothea Puente, and she was born January 9th of 1929. She had a traumatic upbringing. Her parents were both alcoholics. Her father repeatedly threatened to commit suicide in front of his children. Uh, Her father died of TB in 1937. Her mother lost custody of her children in 38 and died in a motorcycle accident by the end of the year. Wow. Like, just lay it on thick, hey? So, Puente and her siblings were subsequently sent to an orphanage where she was sexually abused. She also had this habit of changing her name. She had, like, a bunch of different aliases. And um, she was arrested in the 60s, so sometime later, as an adult, for owning and operating a brothel under the guise of a bookkeeping firm in Sacramento. She was found guilty and was sentenced to 90 days in Sacramento County Jail. And then in 61, um, she had briefly uh, been committed to a state hospital after a binge drinking um, incident, which led to a lot of lying criminal behavior and a suicide attempt. And while she was there, doctors diagnosed her as a pathological liar with an unstable personality. Now into the 1980s. In the 80s, Puente ran a boarding house in Sacramento, California. She ended up murdering various elderly and mentally disabled boarders before um, cashing their social security checks. 
Her total number count reached nine murders with six unconfirmed. So let's kind of get into how this all happened. In April 1982, 53-year-old Ruth Monroe began living with Puente in her upstairs apartment, but soon died from an overdose of codeine and acetaminophen, which is Tylenol. Puente told police that the woman was very depressed because her husband was terminally ill, and they believed her, and they ruled, uh, they ruled the death as a suicide. A few weeks later, the police returned with Malcolm McKenzie. He was a 74-year-old uh, pensioner, one of four elderly people Puente was accused of drugging, and he accused Puente of drugging and stealing from him. She ended up in jail for three years, from 1983 to 1985, and while she was there, she found a pen pal, Everson Gilmeth, who was a 77-year-old retiree from Oregon. They uh, ended up getting married rather quickly, but that did not last. They got married after she got out of jail. I should have said that, but it obviously was after she got out of jail and they went from pen pals to more than pen pals and got married rather quickly. One day, uh, Dorothea hired a handyman to build a box for some stuff that she wanted to store away in a unit somewhere. It was approximately six by two feet. Well, the handyman built it and she paid him and off he went. And a few days later, Dorothea called him back and asked him if he could help her move the box. He did. They loaded this now full box into the back of a truck and Dorothea directed him to a riverside near a highway. And they left the box on the bank. A few months later, a fisherman stumbled upon it and opened it. And inside, he found the badly decomposed and unidentifiable body of um, an elderly man inside. Spoiler alert. It was her new husband, Everson. But Dorothea continued to collect Everson's pension and wrote letters to his family explaining the reason he had not contacted them. Um, she said it was because he was ill. And she continued to maintain a boarding house, taking in 40 new tenants. Everson's body remained unidentified for three years. Dorothea continued to accept elderly boarders and was popular with local social workers because she accepted referrals on the tough cases, including drug addicts and abusive tenants. She collected tenants' monthly mail before they saw it, and uh, she would take these checks that they were getting from the government, pay them part of it like an allowance, and then pocket the rest for expenses. During this period, parole agents uh, visited Puente at least 15 times. Though she had been ordered to keep away from the elderly and refrain from handling government checks, no violations were ever noted because this would be her breaking her parole. But uh, they just kind of let her get away with that. While later, Puente had one of her boarders named Chief dig in the basement and cart uh, soil and junk away in a wheelbarrow. At the time, the basement floor was covered with a concrete slab, and Chief later dismantled uh, a garage in the backyard and installed a fresh concrete slab there as well. And soon after, Chief disappeared. On November 11th, 1988, police inquired after the disappearance of one of her tenants. He was a developmentally disabled man with schizophrenia who had been reported missing by his social worker. After noticing the disturbed soil on the property um, from the digging, they uncovered the body of another tenant named Leona Carpenter, who was 78. Seven bodies were eventually found buried on the property. Puente was charged with a total of nine murders. Uh, Puente's boyfriend, or husband, Everson Gilmeth, and eight tenants who lived at the boarding house. According to investigators, most of her victims had been drugged until they overdosed. Dorothea then wrapped them in bed sheets and plastic lining before dragging them to open pits in the backyard for burial. She was convicted of three murders, although the jury could not agree on the other six. And after several days of deliberation, 
The jury was deadlocked at seven to five. The judge declared a mistrial when the jury said further deliberations would not change their minds. Under the law, Puente received life without the possibility of parole. For the rest of her life, she maintained her innocence, insisting that all her boarders had died of natural causes. <laughs> and she died in prison on March 27, 2011, from natural causes. <laughs> she was 82 when she passed away. So basically, this lady pretended she ran a boarding house for the less fortunate, those who were mentally unwell or struggling or had addictions and so on. Then she got her name on their social insurance checks from the government and then killed them while still collecting their money. Wow. What a classy broad. All right, now we're going to get into the one that really, really bothered me because I have known about this case for years the first time I read the transcripts from this, I was bothered. I was bothered this time, too. I just cannot think of anything worse to happen to a human being. So, this is the Toy Box Killer. The Toy Box Killer is also known as David Parker Ray. He was born November 6, 1939. And again, there isn't much that makes my skin crawl when it comes to hearing what humans are capable of. Of course, it's awful, and I would never want any of that to happen to others or myself. But when I first heard about this man years ago, I had stumbled upon the transcripts from the homemade videos he had taken in his sessions, I guess we'll call them. And I could not get through them. The inflection in his voice, the language he uses, just the things that he said in general, the imagination that went into what he did. I have never read something so messed up in my life. I still don't think anything has a beat to this day, honestly. And I've been a true crimer for years now. Okay, let's, let's start at the beginning of his story. During his childhood, David Parker Ray and his younger sister Peggy lived with their really strict grandfather. He was sporadically visited by his violent alcoholic father, who would supply him with magazines depicting sadomasochistic pornography, so violent, very, very violent, seemingly unconsensual porn. He went to high school in New Mexico, and he was bullied by his peers for his shyness around girls. And then he developed these sexual fantasies of raping, torturing, and even murdering women. And this developed during his teenage years. Around this time, his sister discovered his sadomasochistic drawings, as well as pornographic photographs of bondage acts. As a side note, the bondage acts, those could, those could be innocent enough, um, I suppose. But we're talking about this guy and just... Just wait, there's, but wait, there's more. So, uh, as a young adult, Ray soundproofed a semi-trailer, which he called his toy box, and he equipped it with items used for sexual torture. He would kidnap between five and six girls a year, holding each of them captive for around three to four months. Every new girl that would end up in this trailer would wake up and the first thing they would hear is this guy's voice on a tape recording. Think of the Saw movies, like Jigsaw, who would pre-record tapes for his victims. These tapes were basically telling them what to expect, what was going to happen to them, that kind of thing. During this period, he would sexually abuse his victims, sometimes involving his dog or his wife, who participated willingly in her husband's crimes and often tortured them with uh, surgical instruments. He would torture these kidnapped girls with surgical instruments. Then Ray would drug them with barbiturates in an attempt to erase their memories of what had happened before abandoning, abandoning them on the side of the road somewhere. So we're going to get into like the nitty-gritty of exactly what he used on these girls. So 
Ray sexually tortured and presumably killed his victim using uh, whips, chains, pulleys, straps, clamps, leg spreader bars, surgical blades, electric shock machines, and saws, just to name a few. It's thought that he terrorized many women with these tools for many years with the help of accomplices, some of who are alleged to have been uh, several of the women he was dating during these time periods. Inside his toy box, um, along with numerous sex toys, torture implements, uh, syringes, and detailed diagrams showing ways of inflicting pain, there was a homemade electrical generator, which was also used for uh, torture. And as what I am assuming he thought was the finishing touch, he installed a mirror mounted in the ceiling above the surgical table to which he strapped his victims. Ray also put his victims in wooden contraptions that bent them over and immobilized them while he had his dogs and sometimes other friends rape them. He has been said to have wanted his victims to see everything he was doing to them. And I know most true crimers want juicy details, so... Here is the first snippet of the pre-recording he would play his victims. Hello there, bitch. Are you comfortable right now? I doubt it. Wrists and ankles chained, gagged, probably blindfolded. You're disoriented and scared too, I would imagine. Perfectly normal under the circumstances. For a little while, at least, you need to get your shit together and listen to this tape. It is very relevant to your situation. I'm going to tell you, in detail, why you've been kidnapped, what's going to happen to you, and how long you'll be here. You probably think you're going to be raped, and you're fucking sure right about that. Our primary interest is uh, in what you've got between your legs. You'll be raped thoroughly and repeatedly in every hole you've got. Because, basically, you've been snatched and brought here for us to train and use as a sex slave. End quote. Does anyone else feel a little nauseous? Because I do. <laughs> anyway, so how did he get caught? Because eventually, clearly, he got caught. So Ray posed as an undercover police officer and approached a woman named Cynthia Vigil in a parking lot. He told her that she was under arrest for solicitation of prostitution, and he handcuffed her. He put her in his trailer and took her to Elephant Butte, which is in New Mexico. After three days of captivity, she ended up escaping from the trailer on March 22, 1999. To escape, she waited until Ray had gone to work and then unlocked her chains. Ray's accomplice, Cindy Hendy, had left the keys on a nearby, nearby table before going to another room to speak to someone on the phone. As a side note, it baffles me that there are women out here who help people do this. It's just like... It's just another, I know everyone is capable of these kinds of things. I mean, there are people of all genders that do this, but like having another woman is just, you know what I mean? Anyway, Cynthia got the keys, but Hendy noticed her attempt to escape and a fight started. During the struggle, Hendy broke a lamp on the survivor's head, but Cynthia unlocked her chains and stabbed Hendy in the neck with an ice pick. Nice. She fled while wearing only an iron slave collar and padlocked chains. She ran down the road seeking help, which she got from a nearby homeowner who took her in, comforted her, and called the police. Her escape led officials to the trailer, and that instigated the capture of Ray and his accomplices. Ray had a video of another victim, Kelly Garrett, which dated from 1996. So when he had found this girl, uh, he took her to his trailer, attached a dog collar and leash to her neck. She did wake up, but blacked out several times during two days of torture and drugging. During this time, Ray noticed that she was breathing and he slashed her throat open. Thinking that he had killed her, Ray dumped her beside a road near some small town. She later was treated for her injuries at a local clinic. 
Neither her husband nor the police believed her story either, which infuriates the absolute shit out of me. Anyway, her husband believed that she had been cheating on him the night she was attacked. And then he sued for divorce. So she up and moved to Colorado. Like, the police didn't believe her. Her husband didn't believe her. Not only did he not believe her, he's like, nope, you're cheating on me. I'm getting a divorce. What? So then she packed up her life and moved to Colorado and just dealt with it on her own. After the publicity surrounding the arrest, another victim named Angelica came forward. She told a similar story and said that she had reported the incident to police, but there had been no follow-up. Again, no one believed her. Like, and people wonder why no one wants to report, like, these kinds of things these days. Like, look at what happens. I digress. He was sentenced in 2001 to 224 years in prison for numerous offenses in the abduction and sexual torture of three young women at his Elephant Butte Butte Lake House. In 1999, accomplice Dennis Roy Yancey was convicted of the strangulation murder of Mary Parker, which also happened in Elephant Butte, which Ray also recorded. Yancey was paroled after serving only 11 years in prison, but the release was delayed by difficulties in negotiating a plan for residence. Three months after his release in 2011, Yancey was charged with violating his parole. He was remounted to custody, where he is to remain until, guess, 2021 to serve the rest of his original sentence. And yes, he is out now, so do with that information what you will. In 2000, Cindy Hendy, the girlfriend, the accomplice, uh, she testified against Ray, and she received a sentence of 36 years for her role in the crimes. She was scheduled to receive parole in 2017. She was released on July 15, 2019, after serving two years of, of her parole in prison. So she's out too. I just have so many messed up feelings about this entire situation, but I mean, it basically speaks for itself. This is just one of the worst cases I have come across. If you want more details, I'm sure you, I mean, there is things on YouTube um, about the toy box killer. And um, even if you Google, you can find some of the things that he used or created to torture these women um you can also find the transcripts if you're really wanting to um if you really want to do that to yourself they're very easy to find all right on to the next we are going back to victorian england or the uk i suppose Her name is Amelia Dyer, and she was born in England in 1836. She was the youngest of five children. Her childhood was a bit of a mess because her mother was very mentally ill. She became seriously mentally ill after contracting typhus, and Amelia witnessed her mother's violent fits and was obligated to take care of her until she died in 1848. Fun fact that made me laugh um, (laughs) while I was reading about her. So when she was a young adult, uh, she married George Thomas. George Thomas was 59 at the time, and they both ended up lying about their ages on the marriage certificate to reduce the age gap, because apparently that was frowned upon back then as well. (laughs) So as an adult, Amelia trained as a nurse, Um, and was widowed in 1869, she turned to baby farming, which was the practice of adopting unwanted babies in exchange for money. So uh, she did that to support herself. Dyer was keen to make money from baby farming, and alongside taking in and er, expecting women, she advertised to nurse and adopt a baby in return for Um, a large one-off payment, and adequate clothing for the child. In her advertisements and meeting with clients, 
She assured them that she was respectable and married and that she would provide a safe and loving home for the child. In the beginning, she cared for the children legitimately, in addition to having two of her own. But whether intentionally or not, a number of them died in her care. At some point in her baby farming career, Dyer decided to forgo the expense and inconvenience, just, you know, cut corners, and started letting the children die through neglect and starvation. Soon after the receipt of each child she murdered, she murdered them. So basically, as soon as she would get paid, she would murder them. So she could just keep all the money and not have to spend any money on them. That led to a conviction for neglect, and she got six months of hard labor. Wow, what a, what a sentence. After she did her six months of hard labor, she returned to baby farming and murder. Again. Dyer realized she had made a mistake involving doctors to issue death certificates and began disposing of the bodies herself. The dicey nature and extent of her activities again prompted undesirable attention. She was alert to the attention of police and of parents seeking to reclaim their children. She and her family frequently relocated to different towns and cities to escape suspicion and kind of, they just wanted to be anonymous and to um, acquire new business set up shop somewhere else where they don't know what kind of asshole you are so if you haven't figured this out um, throughout this time she was very mentally unstable I know it's a shocker she was committed to several mental asylums and survived at least one serious suicide attempt She was finally caught when an infant was found in a sack in the River Thames. Um, And it had evidence leading to her. She was arrested on April 4th, 1896. It was one of the most sensational trials of the Victorian period. During April, the Thames was dredged and six more bodies were discovered, including um, Doris Marmon and Harry Simmons which were Dyer's last victims. Each baby had been strangled with white tape, which, as she later told the police, was how you could tell it was one of mine. There was a very short trial. It took the jury four and a half minutes to find her guilty, and she was hanged on June 10th, 1896. At the time of her death, A handful of murders were attributed to her, but there's little doubt she was responsible for many more similar deaths. Uh, The approximate number is 400 or more. Like, she was a busy lady in the worst way. But those 400 um, make her a candidate for history's most prolific serial killer. And another speculation that people had was because she was um, alive during the time of Jack the Ripper and that person's killings, some of us suggested that um, she actually was Jack the Ripper. However, no hard evidence connect Dyer to the Jack the Ripper murders. All right, on to the next. Do we need a, do we need a bathroom break? Do we need a drink break? Uh, Good thing there's a pause button, right? This next one is probably one of the most famous Canadian murder stories um, in recent history. And this one is the Ken and Barbie killers, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. This one has aspects that just are so messed up. Like, I mean... All murder is just messed up, but like, you know, some people are just a little bit more twisted than others. I feel like this is one of those cases. So we will start off with Paul's early life. Paul Bernardo's father, Kenneth, sexually abused his daughter uh, when she was young. He also fondled a girl, a young girl, and was charged with child molestation in 1975. Bernardo's mother, was very depressed about her husband's abuse and withdrew from family life in general and lived in the basement of their home in Scarborough, Ontario. 
to be honest, can't really blame her for reacting that way. So growing up, uh, Paul was the perfect child. He was polite, well-mannered. He did well in school. He was like that sweet little boy in the Boy Scout uniform. But beneath the charming facade, Bernardo, in his teen years, developed dark sexual fantasies and enjoyed humiliating women in public, and he beat the women that he dated. In October of 1987, which made him 23 at the time, he met Carlo Homolka, and they really hit it off as bang buddies. Unlike the other women he knew, she encouraged his sadistic sexual behavior. I mean, I guess you gotta find someone who likes the same kinks as you, right? (laughs) So he had started his crime streak um, by this time, and there were 19 reported cases that the police eventually traced back to him, starting in 87 all the way up until 1990. During some of those attacks, he even got caught in the act and was chased, but he actually got away every single time. Police received two tips that the person that they were looking for was Bernardo. The first one was in June and had been filed by a bank employee. The second was from um, the wife of one of the three Samarini brothers who were among Bernardo's closest friends. So one of the brothers told detectives that Bernardo had been called in on previous rape investigations, one in December of 87, but he had never been interviewed. So even his really good friends were like, um, pretty sure my friend is a uh, serial rapist. And the police still, like, they didn't even interview him. So Bernardo frequently talked about his sex life to his friend, his best friend, and said that he liked rough sex. Police finally interviewed him in November of 1990 for 35 minutes, and Bernardo voluntarily provided samples for forensic testing. And when the detective asked Bernardo why he thought he was being investigated for the rapes, he admitted that he resembled the composite. Like, yeah, you know, that kind of looks like me, doesn't it? All right, let's bring Carla deeper into this mess. Okay, so by 1990, Paul was spending a lot of time over at the Homolka house. Although he was engaged to Carla by this time, he flirted with her younger sister, Tammy. He had become obsessed with Tammy, actually, peering into her window and entering her room to masturbate while she slept. And Carla Homolka helped Paul by breaking the windows in her sister's room so he could get easier access into the room. Like, what the? That is like some pervy Edward Cullen shit. So one night while Carla and Tammy and Paul were at home, Carla laced Tammy's spaghetti sauce with Valium she had stolen from her work. Uh, She was working at a vet clinic at the time. And she served it to her sister, who soon lost consciousness. Bernardo then raped Tammy while Carla watched. Tammy was 14 at the time. On another occasion a year later, Carla and Bernardo administered sleeping pills to the now 15-year-old Tammy in a rum and eggnog cocktail. When Tammy lost consciousness, Carla and Paul undressed her, And Carla applied a um, chemical-soaked cloth to her sister's nose and mouth. It was to just knock her out even more. So Carla wanted to give Tammy's virginity to Bernardo for Christmas. I'm, I'm not sure how that works after he already raped her before, but okay, we're not talking technicalities here. Bernardo was disappointed that he was not Carla's first sex partner, and with Tammy's parents sleeping upstairs, they videotaped themselves, both of them, raping her in the basement. Tammy began to vomit, they tried to revive her, and they called 911 after hiding the evidence, which they dressed Tammy and moved her into her bedroom, and a few hours later, Tammy was pronounced 
dead at a hospital. And despite their odd behavior, like vacuuming and washing laundry in the middle of the night, and despite a chemical burn on Tammy's face, the regional municipality of Niagara coroner and the Homoka family accepted Paul and Carla's version of events, and the official cause of Tammy Homoka's death was accidental, choking on vomit after consumption of alcohol. So Paul and Carla subsequently videotaped themselves with Carla wearing Tammy's clothing and pretending to be her. Like, they thought it was this game. Like, these two are so warped. And and that is what Carla got Paul for a wedding present. On June 7th, 1991, Carla invited a 15-year-old girl she had befriended at a pet shop two years earlier who was known as Jane Doe in the trials for a girls' night out. After an evening of shopping and dining, Homolka plied Jane Doe with alcohol laced with um, halcyon, which is a sedative of some kind. Uh, when the girl lost consciousness, uh, Homoka called Bernardo to tell him that um, she had a surprise gift ready. And this is where Paul videotaped Carla raping the girl before he himself sexually assaulted her. The next morning, Jane Doe was nauseated but thought that her vomiting was from drinking alcohol for the first time and didn't realize that she had been sexually assaulted. So in August, uh, when Jane Doe was called by Carla, uh, Carla invited her back to spend the night and was again drugged. Except this time, Carla called 911 for help after the girl stopped breathing while being raped. Um, Homoka called back a few minutes later to say that, oh, don't worry about it, everything's all right. And the ambulance was recalled without follow-up. But Jane Doe survived that, thankfully. On yet another occasion in 91, Paul ran across a young teenager named Leslie Mahaffey. The 14-year-old had missed her curfew after attending a friend's wake and was locked out of her house. Bernardo left his car and approached her, saying that he wanted to break into a neighbor's house, which she was completely unfazed by, and she asked if he had any cigarettes. When Bernardo led her to his car, he blindfolded her, forced her into the car, and drove her home, and informed Carla that they had a victim. Both of them, again, videotaped themselves torturing and sexually abusing Mahaffey while they listened to music. And at one point, Bernardo said, you're doing a good job, Leslie, a damn good job. And then added, the next two hours are going to determine what I do to you. Right now, you're scoring perfect. The following day, Bernardo claimed Carla fed her a lethal dose of the um, knockout chemical that they had been using on these women. And Carla claimed that Bernardo had strangled her. In any case, she was dead. And they put her body in their basement, and the day after that, the, homo the whole Homoka family had dinner at the house. And after the Homokas and their remaining daughter Lori left, uh, Bernardo and Carla decided that the best way to dispose of the evidence would be to dismember Mahaffey and encase each part of her remains in cement. Bernardo bought a dozen bags of cement at a hardware store the following day, and he kept the receipts which were very damaging in his trial. Bernardo used his grandfather's circular saw to dismember Mahaffey, and then they made a number of trips to dump the cement blocks in Lake Gibson. At least one of the blocks weighed about 200 pounds and was beyond their ability to sink, so it just lay near the shore where it was found by uh, a man and his son while on a fishing expedition. They used dental records to identify the victim. And then in the spring of 1992, Bernardo and Homolka drove through St. Catharines to look for potential victims, like they're going shopping or something. They passed by a Catholic school and spotted 15-year-old Kristen French walking briskly to her nearby home. 
They pulled into a parking lot of uh, a church, and Homoka got out of the car, map in hand, pretending to need assistance. When French looked at the map, Bernardo attacked her from behind, brandishing a knife and forcing her into the front seat of their car. From the back seat, Homoka subdued French by pulling her hair. Having done this at um, the end of the school day, in the middle of the day, uh, several witnesses had seen the abduction from different locations and reported it to police. Over the Easter weekend, Bernardo and Homoka videotaped themselves torturing, raping, and sodomizing French, forcing her to drink large amounts of alcohol and submitting to Bernardo. The following day, Bernardo and Homoka murdered French before going to the Homokas for Easter dinner. Carla testified at her trial that Bernardo strangled French for seven minutes while she watched. Bernardo said that Carla beat French with a rubber mallet because she tried to escape and French was strangled with a noose around her neck, which was secured to a chest. French's nude body was found April 30th, 1992, in a ditch in Burlington, about 45 minutes from St. Catharines, and a short distance from the cemetery where Mahaffey is buried. She had been washed, and her hair had been cut off. In addition to these, there were four other victims during the 90s, and two almost abductions. 26 months after Bernardo submitted a DNA sample, Toronto police were informed that it matched that of the Scarborough rapist and immediately placed him under 24-hour surveillance. Metro Toronto Sexual Assault Squad investigators interviewed Homolka on uh, February 9th, 1993. Despite hearing their suspicions about Bernardo, Homolka focused on his abuse of her. Later that night, she told her aunt and uncle that Bernardo was the Scarborough rapist that she and Bernardo were involved in the rape and murder of Mahaffey and French, and that the rapes were recorded on videotape. The NRP reopened its investigation of Tammy Homolka's death, and two days later, Homolka met with Niagara Falls lawyer George Walker, who sought legal immunity from Crown prosecutors in exchange for her cooperation, and she was also placed under 24-hour surveillance. After meeting with a lawyer, due to Homoka's involvement in the crimes, full immunity was not even a possibility. Police got a search warrant, and it took them 71 days to go through the house thoroughly. The only tape they found was a brief segment on Homoka performing oral sex on Jane Doe, who, if you remember correctly, survived. Carla was offered a plea bargain of 12 years, and she accepted, and after the paperwork was done, she started telling police everything that had happened. She told police that Bernardo boasted that he had raped as many as 30 women, twice as many as the police suspected, and called him the happy rapist. Bernardo was tried for the murders of French Mahaffey in 95, and his trial included detailed testimony from Homoka and the videotapes of the rapes. Bernardo testified that the deaths were accidental, later claiming that his wife was the actual killer. On September 1st, 1995, Bernardo was convicted of a number of offenses, including first two-degree murders, two aggravated sexual assaults, and sentenced to life in prison without parole for at least 25 years because that's the best we can do in Canada for life in prison. He was designated a dangerous offender, making him unlikely to ever be released. Carla's plea bargain was criticized by many Canadians since Bernardo's first defense lawyer withheld videotapes for 17 months. They were considered crucial evidence and prosecutors said that they would have never agreed to a plea bargain if they had seen the tapes. In 2015, Bernardo became eligible and applied for day parole in Toronto. According to victim's lawyer, uh, Tim Danson, it is unlikely that Bernardo will ever be released from prison because of his dangerous offender status. But again, Bernardo became eligible for parole in um, 2018. And on October 17, 2018, he was denied day parole and full parole by the Parole Board of Canada. His next parole hearing took place on June 22, 2021. It only took one hour of deliberation by the presiding judge for his application to be turned down. So basically, they are never letting him out, which is good. Bernardo 
scored 35 out of 40 on the psychopathy checklist. Wow. He even beat Elaine Warnos. If uh, you listen to that one, she scored 32 out of 40. And she is legitimately clinically insane (laughs) is a nice way to put it, I guess. Evidence from expert psychiatric reports found that he had deviant sexual interests and he met the diagnostic criteria for sexual sadism, voyeurism, and paraphilias. If you listen to episode 9, which was about kinks and paraphilias, you should know what all of those terms mean. Um, And if not, you can definitely go back and listen again. Uh, These reports further stated that he met the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder and met the requirement for a diagnosis of psychopathy, obviously. I mean, when you basically ace the checklist, that's that's not a good thing. All right, we are on to the last person, the last serial killer. Also a very, very, very famous Canadian case. And this is the case of Piggy Palace and Robert Picton. Robert Picton was born October 24th, 1949, to a family of pig farmers in Port Coquitlam, BC, which is about 27 kilometers east of Vancouver. So as a kid, Robert and his younger brother, David, began working on their pig farm. His mother was very demanding, prioritizing the pigs over the brothers' personal hygiene and well-being, and forced them to work long hours raising the family's livestock. Picton was strongly attached to his mother, however, and he had little interaction with his abusive father. When he was in his early teens, he used his savings to buy a calf, which became his beloved pet. One day after failing to find it after school, he was told by his mother to check the barn, where he was heartbroken to find it slaughtered. A few years after high school, his parents died, His siblings didn't want the farm, so Robert took it over and began to run it. He had a hired hand named Bill Hiscock, who described Picton as a pretty quiet guy whose occasional bizarre behavior, despite no evidence of substance abuse, would draw attention. So Robert and his brother uh, registered the farm as a non-profit charity called the Piggy Palace Good Time Society with the Canadian government in 1996, claiming to organize, coordinate, manage, and operate special events, functions, dances, shows, and exhibitions on behalf of service organizations, sports organizations, and other worthy groups. Its events included raves and wild parties featuring Vancouver sex workers and gatherings in a converted slaughterhouse on the farm. And on March 23, 1997, Picton was charged with the attempted murder of Wendy Estetter, who he stabbed several times during an altercation at the farm. Uh, Wendy had informed police that Picton had handcuffed her, but that she had escaped after suffering several lacerations. She told them she had disarmed him and stabbed him with his weapon. He uh, was released on a $2,000 bond, and then the charge was dismissed entirely in um, January of 1998 because they thought that Wendy wasn't considered a competent witness due to drug addiction. So the farmhand that Picton had hired, over the course of about three years, he started noticing that women who visited the farm eventually went missing. So here is how Picton did what he did. He became familiar with the downtown east side, East Hastings, and uh He did this through visits to a rendering plant located there where he disposed of waste animal parts. And he would cruise the 10-block strip called the Low Track, offering women money and drugs and often taking them back to his farm. In 1978, uh, a joint RCMP-Vancouver Police Department Missing Women Task Force began compiling a list of missing women. So this was before Picton's time, but the earliest case on the list connected to Picton was that of Diana Melnick. 
of the women on that list, 26 disappearances have officially been attributed to Robert Picton. Other disappearances before and during this period were not officially connected to Picton due to lack of evidence. Because of the marginalized lifestyles and the habits of the victims and other people in the downtown east side, disappearances often went unnoticed. Over the years, as the rate of disappearances escalated, rumors of a serial killer began to circulate in the downtown east side. Sex trade workers began walking the low track in groups and writing down license plate numbers of cars that picked up women, but the disappearances continued. Many of the missing women were also indigenous, and as the Picton case unfolded with its many indigenous victims, it focused public attention on the wider issue of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in Canada. This in turn led to national government inquiry into the issue, which began in 2016. So in the spring of 1999, an informant told the Vancouver police that a single mother and drug addict named Lynn Ellingson had seen a woman's body hanging in Picton's slaughterhouse. And when questioned by police, Ellingson initially denied the story. Only much later did she admit that on March 20th, she had, in fact, seen the body. She didn't report it because she, she was scared of Picton, and she also depended on him for money and drugs. On February 6, 2002, police executed a search warrant for illegal firearms at the property. Robert and David Picton were arrested, and police obtained a second warrant using what they had seen on the property to search the farm as part of the BC Missing Women investigation. Personal items belonging to missing women were found at the farm, which was sealed off by members of the Joint RCMP Vancouver Police Department Task Force. The following day, Picton was charged with weapons offenses. Both of the Pictons were later released, however, and Robert Picton was kept under police surveillance. On February 22, 2022, Robert Picton was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder in the death of Serena Abbotsway and Mona Wilson. On April 2nd, three more charges were added for three more bodies they had found, and a sixth charge um, was laid on April 9th, followed by a seventh very shortly after. On September 20th, four more charges were added for the slayings of another four bodies they had found, and then four more for um, four more bodies that they had found, which brings the total to 15. This was the largest investigation of any serial killer in Canadian history. On May 26, 2005, 12 more charges were laid against Picton, which brought the number of first-degree murder charges to 27. Excavations continued at the farm through November of 2003. The cost of the investigation is estimated to have been approximately $70 million by the end of 2003, according to the provincial government. As of 2015, the property is fenced off, and it is under a lien by the Crown and Right of British Columbia. In the meantime, all the buildings on the property except the small barn have been demolished. Forensic analysis proved difficult because the bodies may have been left to decompose or be eaten by insects and pigs on the farm. During the early days of the excavations, forensic anthropologists brought in heavy equipment, including two 50-foot flat conveyor belts and soil sifters to find traces of human remains. On March 10, 2004, the government revealed that Picton may have ground up human flesh and mixed it with pork that he sold to the public, which then prompted the province's health authority to issue a warning. And another claim was that he simply fed the bodies directly to the pigs. So as of February 20th, 2007, the following information had been presented to the court. During Picton's trial, lab staff, staff testified that about 
80 unidentified DNA profiles, roughly half male and half female, had been detected uh, as evidence. The items police found inside Picton's trailer were a loaded 22 revolver with a dildo over the barrel that had one round fired. Like, that is also some saw shit. Like, getting shot through a, a dildo. Fuck. There was also a box of 357 Magnum handgun, a- gun ammunition, night vision goggles, two pairs of faux fur lined handcuffs, a syringe with three mils of blue liquid inside, and Spanish fly aphrodisiac, which is apparently a natural health product that allegedly boosts libido, improves sexual performance, and enhances climax. There was also a videotape of one of Picton's friends saying Picton had told him a good way to kill a female heroin addict was to inject her with windshield washer fluid. So that syringe with three millimeters of blue liquid inside, well, put the pieces together on that one. A second tape was played for Picton in which um, an associate named Andrew Bellwood said Picton mentioned killing sex workers by handcuffing them, strangling them, and then bleeding and gutting them before feeding them to the pigs. There was also photos of the contents of a garbage can found in Picton's slaughterhouse, which held some of the remains of Mona Wilson. So essentially, he would either lure women as a John, which hiring them for sex, or offer them drugs for sex. Some came from the parties he would throw, and then he would torture and kill them, butcher them like an animal, and then feed them to his pigs. For the true crimers out there, you know how efficient pigs can be with cleaning up every last piece of edible substance. However, there was also a rumor that he processed some of those women and fed them to people at some of his events. As stated, he would mix them with pork. God, that's disgusting. So he appealed his case all the way up to the Supreme Court, but that obviously didn't go well for him. After Picton lost his final appeal at the Supreme Court of Canada, the missing a uh, Women Commission of Inquiry chaired by Wally Opal was called to examine the role of the Vancouver police and the RCMP in the disappearances and murders of women in the downtown east side. Families of the missing and murdered women had been calling for police hearings since before Picton was arrested and eventually convicted of the murders. The commission's final report submitted to the Attorney General was dated November 19, 2012 and released to the public on December 17th. During the inquiry, lawyers for some of the victims' families sought to have an unpublished 289-page manuscript authored by former police investigator Lori Schneer entered as evidence and made entirely public. Several passages were read into the inquiry's record, but the commissioner de- declined to publicize the entire manuscript. Eventually, Picton did admit to his killings um, after he had spent years in prison He admitted to killing 49 women, and he told his cellmate, I was just going to fucking do one more, you know, make it even. And that is the story of Robert Picton and the Piggy Palace. Just, just remember, just remember, y'all voted for this on Instagram repeatedly. (laughs) And so... Ask and you shall receive, but, um, yeah, wow, this was, um, this really got down and dirty, and I think this is probably some of the worst true crime stories I've, I've had to research, read, be a part of. (laughs) Is this the time when you go watch, like, a Disney movie or something, or some, like, feel-good show, so you, like, reset your... (laughs) Reset your emotional equilibrium. <laughs> we will be talking about something much different, much happier, much prob- probably a lot more educational in the next episode. Having said that, make sure you go follow me on Instagram at Firefly Psychology. You can inbox any questions you have, and I will I will be answering questions in the next episode. I know it's been a few episodes, um, but I have a few waiting that need to be answered, so... 
If you have any more questions, feel free to shoot them my way. Also, if you're feeling really generous and you're on Spotify, uh, could you uh, give me a rating? That would really help out the podcast. All right, I'm going to leave you alone. Have a good day or night whenever you're listening to this. And I will talk to you guys in the next one. Bye.